So good evening, everyone. I'm Lucinda. We're just going to start with a karakia, and then I will introduce the session this evening. So I'll hand over to you, Rachel. Thank you. Kia ora, nga mahi nui kia koutou tai mai i tēnei pō, ki te tautoko i tēnei kaupapa. Whakataka te hau ki te uru, whakataka te hau ki te tonga. Kia mā kina kina ki uta, kia mā taratara ki kaptai. Kia hi ake ana te atahikura, he tio, he huka, he hauhu, te hei mauriora. Nga mahi. Kia ora. Good evening, tēnei koutou. Welcome to our COVID webinar, uh, Red, Yellow, Green. We know that there have been a number of webinars regarding COVID, but this is 100% uh, focused on rural New Zealand, rural practitioners, and how we will manage the COVID pandemic within our localities. Tonight, we are going to discuss the actual hands-on practical everyday management of COVID in our rural uh, communities. The aspects we are going to discuss tonight uh, some are new issue, issues significant because of COVID, such as streaming our practices and ventilation, but then others are not new, but have a COVID twist, such as transport, transfers, pathways and vaccination. The aim of tonight is to make you consider how you will manage COVID locally in your rural hospital or practice, helping you get prepared now and hopefully making the preparations easier by sharing the knowledge around our table tonight. Firstly, some speakers will talk to us and then the rest of the session is for questions and robust discussion. As usual, our sessions are supported by the University of Otago section of Rural Health Department of General Practice and endorsed for one hour of CME by the Rural New Zealand College of General Practitioners. Please complete the survey at the end and enter your medical council number if you would like me to lodge your CME points. This is only available this evening. On our panel this evening, we have Jared Green, who's a uh, clinical ID specialist and rural generalist based in Waikato, Jeremy Weber, who's a rural generalist based in Taupo, uh, Rachel Thompson, who's a rural GP based in Takaha on the East Coast, Mark Smith, who's a rural generalist based down in Dunstan, uh, and Steve Withington, who is a rural generalist based in Ashburton. And of course, we have Gary, who is our, our question organizer, coordinator extraordinaire. So firstly, we're going to start with Jared Green uh, and uh, he is going to cover the, some of the clinical aspects of COVID. So I'll hand over to you, Jared. Kia ora, Lucinda. I'm wondering if the term Godfather could be applied to Gary. This might kind of sum up his various roles in, in, in quite a pithy way. So I've got five minutes to talk all about clinical COVID. There's a lot to talk about and not much to talk about, I think. We need to start thinking of COVID as not something that's an abstract uh, concept in rural New Zealand. It's something we're all going to see over summer or autumn. And it at heart is quite a simple illness. It's a viral upper respiratory tract illness that when it's severe causes pneumonia. Hypoxia is bad. Inflammation is bad. Isolation and marginalization are bad. I think one of the first things we need to do when approaching COVID over summer as the traffic lights take hold is to think about it. I think it's likely to be something that presents most frequently in unvaccinated people and not deliberately unvaccinated people. And it might turn up incidentally to our departments and people presenting with other conditions. And I think it's likely to come into our lives through people that might normally tolerate a higher burden of symptoms before seeking medical attention. 
say the fush injury where I've fallen down the stairs and broken my arm. Incidentally, I've had a dry cough for four days and I'm having trouble walking up the stairs, that kind of thing. Other instances we need to think about it over summer is if we see, say, an undifferentiated febrile illness or someone with plausible epidemiological links to either confirmed COVID or people with respiratory tract illnesses, people presenting with pneumonia, whether it's trivial or severe. And to, to think about it, we need to test for it and take adequate precautions. I think the testing available to us is likely to vary quite a lot over summer. I think some of us might have access to rapid antigen tests or LIATs or things like that as they come online. One thing to take bear in mind if we are using those is that they are not adequate diagnostic tests for a clinical syndrome compatible with COVID. They're best applied as a rule-in test to a low probability patient. If I see someone with pneumonia in Thames Hospital or you know, the far north this summer and I do a rapid antigen test, if I'm really thinking about it, a negative LIAT is not going to be reassuring to me. Someone with pneumonia has COVID until proven otherwise over summer. Not all COVID we're going to see requires hospitalization or transfer or much action, but it's worth thinking about how we might get these people home if they're not hypoxic and they do not have risk factors and how to go about that safely. Like a 24-year-old who's not hypoxic with no comorbidities probably just needs to go home to a supported environment but we need to make sure the monarchy aspects of looking after them, getting kai to them, getting their medicines to them, and making sure that they're well looked after and people can check on them is, is well in place before they leave. We need to have in mind how we triage risk of COVID if a COVID-like illness presents to hospital, whether it's confirmed or not. The um, streaming pathways that uh, primary care and health pathways and our district health boards will have in line will give us a stare on this, but it's worth familiarizing yourself with the Ministry of Health guidelines. It's not the easiest thing to orient yourself due to its format, but the information contained wherein is actually quite good. In summary, advanced age is bad, social marginalization is bad, hypoxia, such as being four uh, percent SpO2 off your baseline is bad, exertional desaturation is bad, and having any of the listed comorbidities might make you want to think about discussing the case either with someone, a respiratory specialist or your local COVID expert. If you've decided someone requires treatment for COVID, it's worth doing a risk appraisal. Part of that is the social and monarchy circumstances you're discharging people to, their baseline oxygen sets and signs of inflammation. There's some reasonably good data that people who are able to be managed in the community with uh, risk factors uh, or age over 65 might do well with inhaled corticosteroids. But it's worth being very, very careful about that and making sure that there's follow-up. And if your local area is using home oximetry, that there's a, a means to tap them into the local primary care resilience resources to do that. In terms of therapeutics for COVID, remember COVID's a biphasic illness. Some people might not get into the second phase of COVID, but in the first seven days, there's a, a period of active viral replication where if some of the uh, medications like molnupiravir or the monoclonals become available in your area of practice, that is the first week where you might use them. Things like molnupiravir or remdesivir or the new Pfizer protease inhibitor. The second phase of the illness starts from about day five to 14 onwards. Those patients are not always viremic it's very unusual to isolate virus from people after about day 10, a little bit earlier with Delta, and we don't know with Omicron. 
but that is the phase of illness where you want to use anti-inflammatory medication like dexamethasone. If someone's in a rural hospital requiring more than four liters of oxygen and you've given them dexamethasone, it's worth talking to them, talking about them with a specialist at another center about whether you escalate therapy and whether those people should be transferred. And the time to deterioration in someone presenting hypoxic with symptomatic COVID can be very, very short. In some centers, the time between starting something such as dexamethasone or another steroid and escalating to a higher order biologic agent can be within a number of hours. Sorry, I've tried to splurge out a whole lot within about five minutes. There's plenty more to talk about. Happy to answer questions. Remember, it causes pneumonia. It's very bad. It's a hyperinflammatory illness. Make sure that whatever you do, you're doing it safely, both for you and your patient. And the care does not end once they leave your ED. That was very succinct, Jared, for an infectious illness from an infectious disease specialist. A nice work. Um, sorry, but anyone has any questions around any of that, we can always have a look at those a bit later on. None currently, Jared, so you can relax. And then we will move to Jeremy, who is going um, to have a look with us at some of the pathways and information he's garnered from his other roles that he has in life. So tell us a little bit about that, Jeremy. Got it, all. Welcome to those of you who have joined on since we started. You missed all the highlights, obviously, right at the very beginning. But nice to see you all on board. I haven't had a chance to look through the photos, but it's always nice in these meets to see familiar people. As Lucinda said at the start, you know, we're getting a huge amount of COVID information. If you want to tune out and go and cook dinner or do something completely different because you've heard it all before, please do. Uh, but an opportunity really for our rural colleagues to get together and have a bit of a kōrero. This uh, photo was taken last week, so I was finishing up at the Topo Hospital after looking after the inpatient unit, and we had a procession of camper vans turn up, and it wasn't quite the Auckland getaway just yet, but this is our MIQ. So every DHB is responsible for its own MIQ and how they do it, and so for us, we haven't been told yet, but I'm assuming that the vehicles get transported to the patients' homes for them to self-isolate in their own uh, in their own piece of land. I don't think they're all going to be sitting on our back lawn, but we shall wait and see. All right, so we're just going to cover off a few things that I've seen just as part of my role uh, as the clinical director for rural health with the Rural General Practice Network. Some of the sort of key issues and things that I think we need to be thinking about now and sort of the where to for information. Jared's overview obviously was very succinct and, and I'm sure you've got more questions and we'll have time for that later on. Okay, so I've had a role on the clinical advisory group for the community COVID management and that's reinforced a couple of things for me in that there's certainly a lot of high level talk and lots of very active planning. It's a bit of a slow beast to move and so some of the actions we haven't seen as quickly as we would hope, but it reinforces really you know, the value of boots on the ground and the importance of relationships. And that's something I think that we are well practiced at rurally, but there's not a lot of detail in terms of how it works for you in your locality. So the key issues, so just one more point on that is, so things that have brought up tonight that, that we haven't addressed or there's questions that are outstanding, I, I will take to the next community management uh, webinar, which is tomorrow night, and we can take that up the chain and, and see if we can action any particular issues. But really the key issues that we've identified for rural at the moment is, is the seasonal influx. We know that, you know, with the alert levels changing, it's going to change things for us. And whilst we might be able to manage reasonably confidently our own communities, it's the visitors town which might put a huge strain and, and overburden our resource. 
transport as always, uh, oxygen capacity, that ability to self-isolate in rural. Uh, what happens with after-hours primary care? In some rural hospitals, you know, we're taking the burden of that after-hours coverage for primary care. Uh, and this varying degree of no admissions in rural hospitals, which is an evolving beast. So in terms of the seasonal visitors, and so uh, please familiarize yourself with the pathways and I'll put a link to those further aligned, but essentially once clinical contact's made after a positive notification, they're gonna try, the public health units are gonna try and have one consistent person following that individual through their journey with COVID. Now it's not clear at the moment whether that's gonna be somebody from their hometown or where it's where they get tested positive, or is it gonna be your local resource? But that's, that's sort of the overview. So it won't necessarily be turning up to you in your rural hospital. They might already have a, an established management plan. It's been very clear that the DHBs are the ones responsible for the surge response. So for example, like where we have an outbreak in a rural community, there should be a mobile swabbing team mobilized from the DHB. So if you're not familiar with any of that sort of planning, then it's useful just to touch base with, with your local public health unit and find out what the details are so that those links are made before you need them. This was the message that came out today from the Ministry of Health, this, what they called the summer health message. So I've just uh, cut pasted and apologies, there's a lot of words in here, but essentially what they're saying is that, you know, don't travel if you're crook. If you do get a positive case while you're away, they're not always gonna send people home. And so this was something we were really pushing for a rule so that positive cases automatically had to be going back to their hometown, but that's not the case. So there may be a circumstance where these people are going to be self-isolating in your rural communities. And at some stage, you may be responsible for their management. Uh, so that's just something useful to, to, to consider. I'll leave it up there just for a minute in case you're running through the text. Obviously getting home safely is dependent on being able to drive because they won't be traveling using public transport to return home. Okay, transport side of things, uh, all of us are well practiced with the challenges of transport, but essentially if we think about it in terms of pre-hospital into hospital, it's quite clear from discussions with St. John's that there's no extra capacity. Now, whether they're saying that because they just don't have the assets or whether they don't think they're going to need it, I'm not exactly sure. But I think it's reasonable to assume in your locality that there will be an extra demand and there won't be more vehicles to manage it. And so having to think a little bit laterally about, you know, the, the risk of having to hold people longer in rural and how you resource that uh, for your rural hospital, I think is really important. So we might be able to do that in a rural emergency department. Do you need extra space in terms of holding people? Can you look at cohorting patients into transfer as is necessary? So I think you should anticipate there are going to be longer than your usual significant delays for transport. The St. John's are very clear that the patient transfer system is a DHB responsibility. It's not due to them. And I would hope that there won't be in terms of fighting with that when, it, when push comes to shove. Some people have talked about the air retrieval. So just to clarify, uh, air retrieval is safe with a COVID positive patient but it is certainly more complicated. So the cleaning of the, the vehicle, microphones, et cetera, they can't use N95 masks with, et cetera. So they will only transport someone who, who is critically dependent on it by ear. 
oxygen capacity. So while we're waiting for our rural transport, there will be a, a need for enhanced oxygen capacity. And as Jared talked about, that, that escalation of oxygen therapy is, is, can be quite rapid. And so just have a think about your rural hospital and particularly your rural general practice about what your oxygen capacity is. And I would certainly encourage you to order more bottles at the moment from Bok. Uh, if you can get your hands on another concentrator, then that's really valuable. When I raised this with St. John's, one of the things they said, well, every fire truck's got bottled oxygen. So, <laughs> you know, it's a reasonable rural approach, I guess, but it, it just shows that there's no real capacity within St. John's to go enhancing oxygen capacity in our rural volunteer stations. Uh, the ADE I've put in there, just those are the size of bottles, um, just to have a little think about how long those oxygen cylinders are going to last. So if you've got someone, for example, from Takaha who has to go all the way to Tauranga because Whakatani is not admitting patients, there's a significant oxygen requirement for those patients depending on their, their flow rate. So just some logistical things, which might necessarily be your responsibility, but it's always useful to know in terms of you planning your transport discussions. Uh, the ability to self-isolate. So very clear from the Northland cases at the moment, for every positive case you're getting, there's another 10 in the wider, that close contact who are needing to self-isolate. And so that, that monarchy is, is, is a much bigger issue than the medical management of these cases. The links with, with dependents, with getting food, uh, all of the normal services and, and personal cares that people need to self-isolate are huge. So if you haven't already made them, go away, go out and meet your mayor, meet your providers, meet your services that are in your communities so that you've got those links if you haven't already made them because they're gonna become really vital in terms of that social support for these patients. Tended to bypass our rural hospitals for so this is not ED ones. I expect that to change. And one, as the burden is too great for hospitals, the at our palliative care patients, those been at the bigger hospital and are coming back, so they're oxygen requiring but not fit for discharge yet. Your inpatients are comfortable with using being familiar with the environment. Uh, tested if they're not already and if you've got difficulty getting fit your public health unit uh, chase us up and uh, chase me up and i'm there up on your behalf thinking about the red patient flow and just following that journey so in our hospital prior to those of a patient presenting and walking right through the hospital and things for different years in terms of trying to minimize jeremy 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 can you hear me? Yeah, right. You keep breaking up uh, um, to me. Maybe just talk yeah. to that slide again, please. <laughs> All right. Apologies. Sorry. Rural hospital admission. So at the moment, most hospitals are saying no to inpatients, but I think it's a very reasonable expectation that you will be asked to manage COVID positive patients on your wards. So please get yourselves and your ward staff particularly familiar with PPE and just get making that a, a normal behavior for them so they don't feel intimidated and concerned about the use of PPE for COVID patients. They should be fit tested. If they haven't, then that needs to happen. And please follow up with me if you're having trouble accessing fit testing. Last comment there was about scenario practice of red patient flow. So for us, we've tried to run a couple of scenarios about 
a COVID positive patient walking through the department and right through the hospital and, and sort of what that means to try and minimize contact. Couple of slides to go, apologies for the connection. So guidelines, community health pathways is where all of the management material is located. And again, this is really high level stuff. And for some areas, this has been localized, but it's probably not localized enough for your rural locality. So by all means, familiarize yourself with it, but do have a little think about the specifics that are gonna to matter to you. And mostly that's around, you know, your threshold for transfer and do you consider transferring people more early? It's all based around risk stratification. And so working out the likelihood of your patient deteriorating. Healthpoints.co.nz is a bit more generic. COVID-19 is obviously the ministry site for COVID information. Last but not least, over the optimist, I think there are certainly opportunities. And, and we've seen really clearly, if we look at the health reform stuff and what that means, you know, COVID has been a wonderful opportunity for us to look at how true locality networks and collaboration work, because we're bringing together, you know, all of the final order really delivery of, of healthcare. And it's really neat to see. Don't forget about opportunistic vaccination. So patients, we've done a little audit in Topor, and certainly we're seeing a disproportionate number of unvaccinated people presenting for routine ED management stuff. And so that's a great opportunity to increase those vaccination routes for those hard to reach patients. National Rural Network Networking, we're all very familiar with. Lucinda, that's me. I'll hand over to our next. That's some fabulous information, Jeremy. And Rory's just going to put up a link. So after this, on Leaning on the Fence post, we're going to put all the information that people mention. So Jeremy's links that he's got there, we'll get them put into there. There are some really essential and key information on that, on your talk there, Jeremy. And I'm hoping that a lot of questions will come up around that. And it highlights some of the issues that I think we're going to face coming forward. So, but as Jeremy has mentioned, the Menaki and the social networks that we're going to need to look after our uh, patients, particularly when we're caring for them in our rural communities and the links within our communities, I think is a great uh, segue into what Rachel is going to uh, discuss. So I'll hand over to Rachel Thompson. And if you go from there, Rachel, thank you. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, kia ora no tato. Can you see that? Oh, not that one. That kia one. Da. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know um, many of you. I'm Rachel. I'm a GP in Takaha on the East Coast. Been here for way too long. And yeah, so well, I was asked to talk a little bit about the vaccination stuff and then the management side of things. So we, from the beginning of um, the pandemic, have had quite a strong iwi response. I'm from here. And so this is my people and we from the very beginning had quite a strong response with checkpoints and things going up in that initial phase of the um, pandemic uh, because memory is still very acute here of the 1918 flu epidemic and the graves and things that surround us down here so we've had to work pretty closely together and so we did that during the first part of the um, pandemic and then into vaccination where we sort of made big community decisions back in May, which, so we got most of our vaccinating done May, June, July, was a big task, but it got done. Unfortunately, that means our boosters are due right now. But we did that with the inclusion of, of um, all of our parts of our community that sort of 
helped with the backup and management like our St. John's units, like our marae and hapu and stuff. So we've, it's always been quite a close connection to all of our social services and things, but not always. I mean, it's not certainly not perfect. This definitely has its challenges, a lot of challenges. So then we had to look at what we were going to do from here. And luckily, we're not trying to catch up on vaccinations because our vaccine rates are really high. So we've had a bit of a chance to think about how we're going to manage things in our community. As Jimmy alluded to, our closest hospital that will be admitting COVID patients from one end of our practice by road is, you know, it's going to be a six, five, six hour journey for people. So as I'm sure you guys are all quite familiar with the transport issues. So yeah, we we put together a plan just looking at how we're going to manage the protection and the prevention side of things, which is pretty basic, really. Odds is us. So we're, this is um, Cape Runaway up here. And this is our um, coastline. We're in the middle here. So it's, yeah, it's fabulous. Great place. But we have the same kind of problems as all of you guys would have with very little in the way of connectivity and internet stuff. We did a little bit of modelling around our community and what it's going to look like at our vac- various vaccination rates. But of course, that's completely stuffed up by the fact that so many people come back over the holidays that we have probably, we sell four times the milk and breed. So I'm guessing our population is about four times normal during Christmas. So we looked at our sort of strengths and things and where they sit, looked at our challenges and the non-whanau holiday makers are a biggie for us coming through, as you would be all for you guys. So we did all of that. We then got a coordinated sort of approach with all of our groups. So from the local council who's been involved to our local gang whanaus have been involved, schools, St. John's, that type of thing, and coordinated a plan together. So that's just the list of all of our people. This is just for the DHB. So that was, and so we went quite hard out to finish off our vaccinations, get all them their vaccination passes. The other challenge, which again is the detection stuff because the closest lab is in Tauranga to do our swabs. If we don't have a courier on the weekends, all those things that you guys have. We've looked quite closely into rats testing. Be careful what you wish for. It's still nasopharyngeal. It still takes a while and it's really fiddly. And of course, the sensitivity and specificity are such that you can't make a definitive diagnosis. So they're useful, but they're useful in very specific situations. So we've been training up some more swab takers because I'm sure like you guys, there's no support around for swabbing. But I think if we don't detect the cases, we're really going to be in a bad way. So that's been a big push. And then we sort of went on and developed our own plan. And because what's, what sometimes happens, particularly in Māori communities and have been shown up in Auckland and Waikato, is that if you're, that first approach is no good to say you've got COVID, you've got COVID, I know you don't know who I am, but I'm going to tell you where you have to stay and what you have to do. And I want to know where you've been and who you've seen. You know, a lot of my community would probably tell a stranger to F off and disappear bush. And that's that is just our reality. So we're sort of worked with Toitiora and formulated a plan where they will notify our little Papa Nui public health unit, which is basically us, me and a couple of the others, to so that we can make that first approach to part to our whanau. I think particularly when you're dealing with Māori whanau, if you can go and see them at that first approach. I mean, I was not in a hospital setting, but in rural general practice, if you go and see them and talk to them about it because it's going to be a real shock for some of them. We've 
scared people, I think, with trying to get them to get vaccinated. And so if they go and get COVID, they're going to be terrified. So we're going to try and turn up with the medical pack and the monarchy pack on the same day at the same time. And then let the family make some some decisions on where's the best place to isolate. We're using one of our local resort, I use that term liberally, as a space to occupy for people to isolate. Might be their own buddy, could be a combination of the two, because if the close contacts stay with the case, their 14 days of isolation starts from the day that the case becomes considered recovered. So it can be a very long period. So sometimes it's advantageous to split your your whānau up, particularly if it's there's no space to do that in the house. And then the medical assessment side of things is pretty standard, really. I think we just have to get it happening and involved. Then we've got a, we've sorted out a van that has a COVID curtain so that you can transport people. Otherwise, it's really hard just to get them from their house to their place of isolation if they don't have a car. So I think transport out of the area, but also within the area is going to be quite critical. And then, of course, they're going to die if they don't have medical monitoring, but they may also well die or have to leave isolation if they don't have their needs met in terms of um, mental health support, data, data and devices, because you can't monitor them at home without it. If they, and like you guys, we don't have exactly fabulous mobile coverage that's really patchy and not a lot of great fast internet. So that's really important. And then keep the things to keep kids at home and happy and occupied is hugely important as well. And then we're going to work with the public health people and get the contact tracing going. So we've been meeting and sort of having uh, scenario practices, which has been really useful going through with the Monarchy Services, the issues and things that may come up. Addiction's a huge issue to deal with. You can't expect people to isolate and withdraw at the same time. So you need to probably going to have to be helping to supply things like alcohol and cigarettes. I don't think it's the time to get people off them. As for their other addictive substances, I think there's been a lot of talk about allowing contactless delivery of those while turning a blind eye. This have to be working in places like Waikato and Auckland. In those spaces, most of the COVID is spreading through communities, some of the gang communities, some of the uh, drug using communities, the homeless communities. So I think a lot of our plans that we're seeing coming out of everywhere are going to work for you and me. We're told to stay home. We can stay home. We can access what we need. But we've also the ones who are vaccinated. So the people who really need the care, I'm not quite sure, are included, which is why we were really careful to include, include our young whānau and stuff in developing our plan. We're sort of looking at what everyone's role is along the rollout so that we can sort of map it out. It's changing all the time as everything does in COVID world. So anyway, I think I'm probably going on a bit long, but yeah, we so that we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have regular meetings now, going through scenarios once a week with our Manaki team and us. I've got an iwi response unit that meets once a week. Our hapu reps meet once a week, and that disseminates out to their whānaus. We're setting up whānau plans, particularly for whānau who are unvaccinated or have a lot of challenges, and we're sort of keeping our communication going with the, the district health board. So, yeah, I just think that that's just a model that we've used. It'll work for us, won't work for everybody. But I think if we don't, in small communities, work with each other, we're going to be in, you know, someone's going to have to fix the water, feed the calves, whatever it is, and we're going to need that wraparound support. And I just think the other thing, when you're looking just at the clinical side of it, really got a Māori 
need to be prioritised, Māori and Pacifica. They, there's been a good paper published that states that the what non-Māori will experience at 65, Māori and Pacifica are at much lower ages, like 45 and 39. So I think it's just really key that when you're making your assessments and where the resources are going to be put, you really need to prioritise the groups we know are going to do badly with this. I think that's about... Kia ora, here, here. Absolutely, I agree. You, we must prioritise like, all those marginalised groups, uh, homeless and things that you've mentioned. And yes, isolating and withdrawing would not be a good combination, would it? Okay, thank you, Rachel, very, very much. Okay, Steve, uh, tell us about your study and give us a little overview of you. Thank you. Thank you. Kia ora, my tātou. Thanks, Lucinda. Nice to uh, be with you all tonight. I work in Ashburton Hospital, have a background in infectious disease, got kind of roped into the COVID thing a little bit at national level on a committee trying to look at primary care, uh, rural rural hospital interface. And I realised at that point, it's pretty hard to speak on behalf of rural hospitals. They were all different. And then we had the chance to do the study and interview 17 different people from different rural hospitals looking at their experience of the first wave of COVID. So I thought it would be good to just share briefly some of those findings. I won't be long. I'll share a screen here. That this, was the, this is what the um, uh, paper looks like in the New Zealand Medical Journal. It's literally just come out. So it'd be great to have a look at that. We're kind of looking backwards in order to look forwards because some of the experiences that we had then will be very relevant to those of you in the middle of it now and those of us who are still kind of waiting as COVID spreads down the country again. There are a lot of commonalities as well as the differences. Here is, this is sort of a summary of the experiences of those rural hospital doctors as they reflected on their first exposure to COVID. And I'm sure we are all familiar with that sense of being a bit forgotten in the rush of what COVID was doing and also being overwhelmed by large amounts of not infrequently contradictory information. I can, from my experience in Ashburton, I am, am keenly aware that we've had a visit from a team from uh, CDHB from Christchurch with one with a very tight focus on ventilation and airflows and how you might do safely the you know, red streaming, green streaming. And we're thinking, this is a rural hospital. We can't rebuild it. We've got what we've got. It's limited. It's limited. And that, but then we kind of made a tentative plan, trying to do the very best we had with that ventilation restrictions. And then another uh, contrary, contradictory sort of information about actually do something very pragmatic. You know, you've got to do the best with what you've got and be very pragmatic and don't worry too much. Your staff are vaccinated. Ah, so it's quite difficult. And one of the things that came out from the various participants, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, is that you, you have to adapt and, and people did adapt and they had a, a large number of you know, creative ways of adapting locally you, the response, whether that was in primary care, but this was particularly focused on rural hospitals and local leadership was really important. Sometimes when COVID hit, exactly a local leadership wasn't necessarily as clear as it was in some places as others. But it evolved over time as you realized, as, as people realized, okay, the information we're getting is a bit contradictory. It's not that clear what we've got to do. We'll grasp the nettle, we'll grasp the ball by its horns, and we'll do what we can do and what we should do in our place. And, and one point person being responsible for communicating with the DHB and communicating with the local, local folk and you know, planning. 
planning locally, using innovation, things like reversing the polarity on, you know, positive pressure theatres to make them negative pressure. Um, so that could be a, a negative, an isolation facility using exhaust fans. Well, whatever, you know, whatever you could do to make the most of what was. There was a very large variation, and there probably still is, in our rural hospital experience of a relationship with our base hospitals, our referral hospitals. And largely what predated the COVID was what uh, went into the, you know, the experience of COVID. If it was good, it remained pretty good. If it was bad, it was hard to improve it in a hurry. But nevertheless, for both that local leadership, you know, kind of filled in the gap. And some were able to, you know, create ongoing networks where there's a seat at the table when you're planning, don't forget rural, and, and to, to have a seat at the table of planning at the DHB level. The, there's, we know there's a general lack of understanding of our context. That's just sort of baseline for us. COVID was in, way, in a way a stress test of a system that we know is already stressed. And yeah, the center at the district level, people don't necessarily understand our context and our lack of ability to have surge capacity. Like there isn't any extra and there's nothing we can kind of stop doing so that we can do more COVID. Moreover, I suspect this time around, some things, you know, sort of inevitably and naturally stopped. People didn't present. So there was space for COVID. I don't know about you in your places, but it's not been my experience in recent times that the threat of COVID coming back has slowed down uh, flow to the rural hospitals. Rather, it's, it's, it's ramped up. So, so how do we make the most of what we have, knowing that it's pretty hard to shut down some things? Uh, we don't really have suitable isolation facilities in many, many of our places, and staffing numbers were identified in, from all of our participants as, as a concern. We've talked a bit about transfer of acutely unwell patients, and I won't go into that in any more detail. Jeremy's mentioned that ongoing issue that's a pressing concern to us. It was certainly of concern to all of the participants and equity concerns in that regard. How do we help people have access to uh, advanced care management? And those were the main points. And I think they're still probably at the forefront of our mind the transport issue is interesting, isn't it? Because there was some pushback from St. John's about the paper that was put out. No, we've, we've never said, as some participants were concerned, that um, we won't be transporting sick patients with COVID or with respiratory syndromes. Nevertheless, that was a, a, a common theme in the perception and, and what was experienced and what was being discussed locally. And it just highlights that different perspective. St. John's plan nationally, DHB's plan regionally, and we're looking locally at what re what really is on the ground for our people, and that's a bit different from place to place. I guess my final concern, really, and I love the focus that we've had on Manaki and the, the whole system working well. How do we keep services functioning efficiently and effectively? Learning what was from last year, and how do we minimise staff stand downs because we don't have many people to spare? That's all I wanted to say for the moment. Fabulous questions. Yes, thank you, Steve. We'll get you to put that study up on the uh, web page at the end too. Okay, fabulous. Thank you, Steve. Great to see some, um, obviously, some uh, familiar names on that study too and people doing real research out there. So now we have Mark Smith from Dunstan and he is going to be maybe answering some of those questions, Steve, a little bit. Kia uh, ora So I think I've probably met quite a chunk of you, but good to meet some of you that I haven't before. 
just a quick preface if I look a bit dopey and sound a bit dopey I'm just getting overnight so I probably am a bit dopey so I had the impeccably bad timing of becoming clinical director at Dunstan just before COVID kicked off which wasn't um, necessarily the best timing for the whanau but anyway I'm going to share a few thoughts initially on sort of staff well-being and sort of potential things that that might be useful I want to start by saying I'm not an expert in any of this and my team are welcome to tell me afterwards that I can pick up on this a bit but I think, you know, when you talk to people, and, and I'm sort of basing this on talking to colleagues, both in my sort of area, but also people in Auckland and around the, around the country, uh, you know, people are really tired and burnt out and, or feeling burnt out, not necessarily fully burnt out, uh, but also people are really uh, nervous or worried or scared. Uh, and sort of, I've been saying to people, it's a bit like waiting for your school exams, isn't it? It's coming if it hasn't already arrived and you just sort of want to get on with it sometimes. But just sort of bearing that in mind, there's just a few sort of things that I've sort of listed down uh, to try and support each other through this. So that the first area is sort of just generally checking in. And I'm sure well, I don't want to be teaching people suck eggs. I'm sure everyone's really, really good at, at a lot of this stuff, but it's just sort of a reminder for us. And that checking in is, is really broad. You know, it's checking with it with each other. Leaders, if you're in leadership, checking in with your teams and vice versa, teams checking in with your leaders. But also remembering that I think a good chunk of people will hear medical, but our teams in the rural hospitals or rural practices are, are across the board from admin, from allied health nursing, hospital services and things. So it's checking in with anyone, anyone and everyone. So that's probably the first point I just wanted to talk about. Something that came through from the Auckland people was that if, if a colleague has been exposed, had an exposure event with COVID, or certainly if they've tested positive, then they really need to be wrapped around with extra support. So uh, something else for us to, to remember. Well, I think communication was another thing that was particularly talked about from the Auckland guys, that really good, clear, consistent communication. So I guess for those of us sort of in more leadership roles, it's, it's making sure that our teams know and understand a good sort of robust plan that we each have, a bit like uh, what, what we've already heard earlier is having a plan for your region, whatever it is. Uh, and if our teams know that plan, then they're automatically going to be less stressed and less worried about what's potentially coming or what is coming. Just a wee example, we had at our hospital, there's quite a lot of concern and, and un, unease from the hospital services staff working in the kitchen and cleaning. So a couple of us met with them and just laid out plans more clearly, which we probably should have done earlier, uh, and just answered a whole lot of questions. And there's a really positive response to that. It's important that we look after ourselves uh, and, and make sure that our teams do have breaks that they were planning. So really encouraging where possible that people carry on with annual leave plans, days off, we don't disturb people wherever possible. Sorry to my team for the times that we do disturb you on a day off, but that's something to bear in mind. Also, and different teams will do this differently, but really being proactive about social events, events, fun times. We made the most of Rosalie's Pizza Oven the other day, so just really getting away from the whole work covid -y thing. And the final thing, and I want to sort of acknowledge um, Sarah Clark in this a little bit, uh, is sort of looking at, at concepts of clinical supervision and mentoring and support. So I think it's a really useful time for us all to be thinking about having someone that we might meet with who might be a trusted colleague or mentor or senior. And there's different ways to do this. There is, there's a sort of a, a formal term called clinical supervision that Sarah introduced sort of rural clinical leaders to last year. And I'm not an expert on it. Uh, I'll read out a very quick 
um, couple of lines, courtesy of Sarah, but it talks about some a confidential guidance, monitoring and feedback on matters of professional education and personal development in clinical context. I sort of see it as kind of like a, a bit like a mentoring situation, someone who supports and guides you uh, and encourages self-reflection and self-direction and just ups their game. But I think it, it's pretty full-on and stressful time for a lot of people going through this. Uh, I, I found it quite helpful last year. I met with a, a, an older GP colleague sort of from time to time on Zoom, and that was really useful. So in Auckland, they talked about using uh, psychologists quite a lot. We don't necessarily have ready access to psychologists. We know rurally very much, but it's, it's I guess, thinking of the right person. So, and, and potentially using CME and things to cover that sort of thing. So that's probably the main just from well-being. I just want to echo um, what Rachel was saying earlier about remembering to look after the not just the, I guess, the physical um, needs, but also the emotional needs of patients. And if we think about inpatients in rural hospitals who have COVID, the feedback from Auckland is they're really scared and lonely in their little isolation room. And um, really key that we, we remember that. If I got just one more minute, Lucinda, I'll just switch track slightly to the ventilation thing. So I'm just gonna share a wee pretty picture. So this just builds a wee bit on what Steve and Jeremy have talked about. Uh, in, in rural, you know, while we're part of DHBs, the DHBs don't always get to us when it comes to building and maintenance stuff. And so we have to figure out a lot of this stuff on our own and take number eight wire approaches. So this, um, believe it or not, is our hospital. Someone's colored it in a bit like my kids. And the, the thing we've had to sort of figure out this year is that COVID is now airborne and how do we cope with an airborne virus, not just a droplet virus. And that became really complicated because uh, all these rooms here in yellow share the same ventilation system all these ones in pink share the same and so all of a sudden their plan of putting an orange or red patient in this room or this room doesn't work because they're all going to breathe the same air so we've sort of we've we've figured out how we can turn off that ventilation system it's called a fan core unit basically takes the air out of each room puts it through this machine that controls the temperature and spits it back out through all the other rooms so we can turn that off and that that then means each room's its own sort of unit. So just understanding little things like that, understanding your building airflows and ventilation is really useful. Uh, as Steve mentioned, you can also look at extracts. So this area up here is our chemo unit. And we got a, a friend of mine actually, because it was hard to get the DHB down, a friend who's a ventilation chap came in and had a look and took me up into the roof and showed me how to crank up the extract fan. So we can actually turn that whole area into a negative pressure space just by going up the ladder which means we're going to move chemotherapy out when we get COVID patients and put them in there. So just, I guess, looking for those little sort of number eight wire approaches can be handy. And if all else fails, Brendan Arnold would say, open the window and just make sure the wind's blowing the right direction. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, but cheers, guys. So when you get your first COVID case and you climb into the ceiling, can you just take a photo of that? And then we can um, <laughs> put it up and show everyone. This is how we do it in rural uh, sorting out our ventilation systems it's just like a wee light dimmer it's it's actually a lot easier than i was expecting yeah <laughs> so there you go brad make sure you go and check out your ceiling uh ventilation systems i uh and regarding your clinician well back i mean i think those are really key point i mean actually having clinical supervision at any point i think is key but it is pertinent isn't it currently and as you say, it doesn't have to be another doctor. Actually having someone like a clinical psychologist or someone else could be really, really useful. So 
there could be anyone in this group or uh, I'm very happy to hear from someone if someone wants to connect and then uh, the woman in medicine they have a mentoring uh, system uh, through there too the name eludes me I'm sure someone will put it up on the chat so uh, perfect okay so that is the end of all the uh, sort of pre-planned aspects I'll hand over to Gary and see what he's got going on within the chat over the last half an hour Thanks, Lucinda. Probably like everybody else, I, I really enjoyed hearing about some of those big picture things, you know, particularly around sort of organising and preparing communities and looking after the teams and things. But a couple of specific questions that have come through are probably more targeted at the, at the clinical side of things. And that probably comes back to what Mark was saying about, you know, it's sort of probably everybody's at the stage now almost just sort of wanting to get on with it, really. But the first one's for, for, for Jared. Jared, I, I know everybody wants you to provide us with some sort of like magical saturation level, oxygen saturation level that suddenly means that we sort of change tack and admit the patient or transfer them or whatever. But it's, it's not quite as simple as that. Do you want, do you want to go into that, that a little bit, bit more about what you would consider to be a significant drop in saturations? I, I must admit, I was actually quite interested to hear what you had to say about saturation levels dropping on, on any exertion. Yeah, so I think Shamim made a comment earlier on in the chat stream about being alert to people with presentations that make them physiologically vulnerable that aren't pneumonia. So I think if, if someone's off and something's not right, irrespective of their SATs or physiologically unsafe, that might be a reason to admit them as well. The definition of what constitutes moderate to severe COVID on or the oxygen criterion varies from paper to paper. A lot of studies looking at disease-modifying drugs use 94%. The New Zealand guidelines use 92%. To qualify as moderate to severe COVID, you've got to have SATs below that level on a small amount of oxygen um, supplementation up to, up to four litres. Three to 4% off your baseline, if you know what it is, is considered significant. Uh, Pre-existing lung disease, if you don't usually require oxygen with SATs, less than 90% required, uh, sorry, appears to be significant. If you desaturate on exertion, say by, by 4%, that's a harbinger of uh, better things to come. Something that I think Auckland was using was the one minute sit to stand test where you get people to sit up and down repeatedly on the spot with a pulse ox on and see what happens there and count how many times you're able to do it in a, a minute. If you're monitoring someone over the phone, dropping your sats on that's a, a reason to bring them in for for further assessment. Um, there's no magic number. I think all of these things should be used as a, a reason to upscale your concern or upscale the severity of illness. I think if you dump your SATs by 1% doing a sit to stand test at home and you report feeling dizzy or someone says you look mottled, that means you're unwell and your oxygen SATs are kind of like part of your picture, but not the, not the single thing that should determine what, uh, what intervention you get. Likewise, if you're considering giving people disease-modifying drugs, I think if you have a mild oxygen requirement but have other kind of evidence of hyperinflammatory illness, such as a, a dodgy-looking ECG, a, a dodgy-looking chest X-ray, raised troponin or, or raised D-dimer, that itself might 
score you a higher level of level of therapy. So I think taking that into consideration with a severity scoring system that's available, like on the Ministry of Health website or your, your health pathways is very important. But yeah, the SATs are not the be all and the end all. Low SATs are a reason to upscale your concern. Thanks, Jared. There's, there's another question there around the use of inhaled corticosteroids. So do you want to go around the indications? I see a G Nixon said use inhaled corticosteroids for for everyone. That, that, that's that's the that's the other GN with using my login, I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, the, the New Zealand recommendations are pretty liberal. They suggest if you're over 65 or any age with a listed comorbidity, whether it's hypertension or diabetes or lung disease such as asthma or immunocompromise or such as receiving an organ transplant or having a chronic liver disease or chronic kidney disease, that's reason to start. The national guidance group is quite heavy on saying don't use don't use Simbicort in lieu of inhaled budesonide alone. And if people are on inhaled corticosteroids already, just leave them on their existing therapy. I think that when you're using inhaled corticosteroids, your number needed to harm in terms of causing a bacterial pneumonia is about 40. So they're not completely benign. But if you've got an appropriately selected patient that might save you a few cases of admission to hospital, a few cases of deterioration and some oxygen use. How much would you give them, Jared, if they're, if they're naive and how good of steroids? Yeah, the study dose is 800 micrograms of budesonide twice daily. I haven't seen studies to confirm or deny this, but I imagine this is a class effect rather than something special about budesonide that's um, not a feature of other inhaled corticosteroids. Okay, cool. Hey, just before we ask someone else a question, do you want to just go back to the point you already raised a little bit, which is around some of those less common presentations of COVID that are likely to catch us out? I know during the, the first wave in Europe and things like that, they ended up taking a whole heap of patients to the cath lab, thinking mm. they were having my, MIs, for example. But mm. is, is, is there a few in particular that, that could really potentially catch us out that we should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so you'd expect most people to have a chorizal illness or pneumonia if they're turning up. Some people might have a, a porcy symptomatic presentation with a loss of smell or taste or just my, my smoker's cough tiny bit worse than normal some we will be seeing disease in kids i think is a disproportionately they might present with being off their feeds or feverish for no apparent reason or vomiting or diarrhea or rash uh, vomiting or diarrhea illnesses or weakness or delirium or fever without a focus are things worth bearing in mind some people can present quite late down the line with a multi-inflammatory illness. Say someone rocks up with myocarditis, they might have had COVID and have the sequelae of it a few weeks down the line. Uh, things resembling Kawasaki disease and clotting, uh, sorry, uh, prothrombotic disorders or other late, uh, more less common presentations of COVID. But I think the, uh, the thing to be wary of is older folks, I guess, with vomiting, diarrhea, stuff like that, kids with nondescript febrile illnesses. And remember that we might, we'll be seeing vaccine attenuated illness, illness in immunocompromised people, illness in children who aren't eligible to be vaccinated and illness in the unvaccinated. And some of those groups might actually tolerate a higher symptom burden before presenting to hospital than others. Cool, thanks, Jared. 
Lucinda, there was sort of some discussion earlier on in the chat that I wonder if you might want to take to a few members of the panel, and, and that's around that real difficult one uh, uh, around the, the right threshold for, for transfer to a base hospital. And, and clearly we've heard from Jared that patients can crash really quickly, which means that you really want them to be sitting in, in town if they're likely to require uh, intensive care treatment. But but is, is, can we get any sort of clarity around that? Should, should it be everybody as soon as they've got an oxygen requirement or as soon as they're given that first dose of dexamethasone or are there occasions where you can sit on them a little bit later? And, and I, 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 again, there's probably not going to be a really clear answer to this, but it would be interesting to get a, a few different sets of views. Should we start with you on that, Jared, and then go to Jeremy? Okay. A hypoxic person given dexamethasone can become non-hypoxic and clinically stable in the hours afterwards and might be suitable for discharge. That doesn't mean they stop dex, that means they finish the course orally. So what happens afterwards is critically important. Some people might turn the corner very quickly and not need much and your primary considerations about whether or not to admit them might be monarchy or a distance risk. Alternatively, some people's Sometimes people at risk of deterioration or later presentations might turn up requiring not much oxygen, require steroids, and then start to dump their bundle quite quickly. I think um, if someone doesn't turn around very, very quickly, you should be discussing their wishes about transfer, appraising the risk of keeping them on site and observing them a bit longer or getting them out of town. And certain places might have access to things like tocilizumab or more, more advanced therapies. But if you're just worried about someone, I think discussing them early with uh, your support services and your, your town specialists is quite reasonable. <clears throat> Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, my kind of comment to Jared's really, and it's more about those other issues in terms of where are you discharging them home to and do they have that support and structure to keep them safe? Um, because certainly by definition, most of our patients in rural automatically tick the moderate category in the sense of geographical isolation, higher Māori population and comorbidities. And so, you know, that, that threshold is already ticked on a lot of occasions, but certainly early consultation, probably until we get a bit of a feel as a community in terms of, you know, how these ones are, are behaving. I'm not sure whether we've got the voice open for the likes of Sarah in terms of uh, what she's experienced managing these in Northland. Or is it just our panel listener? Uh, I think Rory can open that up. Can you, Rory? I've just been allowed to speak. Hi, <laughs> look at that, the power. That's Rory's power. Go for it. Oh, kia ora. Kia ora. Um, so in terms of managing in Northland, um, the illnesses tended to be quite mild and we've only had three admissions and one um hospital assessment with discharge so far so we've been we've had a few people who've had the ambulance present to assist them we've had a few people who've um, had video consults all of the the joy around getting scripts to people at odd hours and things like that but but realistically it's a it's a welfare response and the vast majority of people are requiring welfare and it was really interesting listening to Rachel's talk, actually, just sort of sitting there nodding my head going, yep, yep, that's right, yep, yep, you need to give the kids activities, yes, you need to, you know, all of these things. Thanks. 
I miss that question as everything's coming in actually, Gary. So is there anything else specific in there? Or Rachel, have you got anything you'd like to contribute around that and around planning around <coughs> timing of transfers? And I mean, I think uh, it sounds like most of you are in rural hospitals, which I am not and we're not. So ours is a, is a different decision. It's whether we can manage and monitor at home and I think to me and from what I've heard from some of the ones in Auckland once you're needing decks they should they're better off based in hospital because sometimes they feel hugely better with the decks but they still deteriorate very quickly so that can sometimes actually be a dangerous point but that's just what I have been told by others and that the people wanting to self-discharge is a real issue too. If you don't have that connection with whānau and things while they're in hospital, particularly when they get decks, they feel great, and then they just want to go home. So I think that's just another area that we're going to have to watch that the self-discharge because they're not getting connected back to their family, which is where devices and stuff in the hospitals is really important so that you can actually at least virtually connect them with their families. And I know this is not the technical stuff, but I and actually in terms of people surviving and not self-discharging and then dying when they get home it's a really important area absolutely I mean we've seen that already in Auckland I think I mean it's sort of coming up but I think this is where the key around communication and between us as clinicians with the patients whether they're at home or within our hospitals and then between clinician to clinician and then within all the iwi providers and the social services in our community, this is where the art of medicine is going to be key and is going to be really to the forefront of caring for rural New Zealanders. Have you got any more questions in there, Gary? Any more around sort of this aspect of stuff? There's one specific, quite specific question there, perhaps for Jared or Steve, around the dose of decks. Steve. Okay. Yep. Go, Jared. <laughs> I was going to turf that to Steve for a bit of variety, but six milligrams, weight-adjusted dosing for four kids. Just to echo what Rachel's saying, I think you've got to be exquisitely careful with anyone who's requiring disease-modifying therapy for moderate or high-risk features. I, by that, Jared, you mean dexamethasone, or yeah. is this what you're yeah. meaning? Yeah. Just to clarify. Yeah. Would I would I discharge someone from Kafia if they had been observed for four hours after Dex and looked really, really good and they'd turned up to Hamilton? Probably not. No. That I extra layer of rural safety or isolation safety. Yeah. And I think as long as we explain to people what our concerns are, mm. uh, hopefully that the the explanation will make it reasonable to people to stay. Yep. Uh, there are some questions around the tests there, Gary. Have we answered those? There's one from Rosalie around something called lab in a tube, which is something I'm really unfamiliar with. Does anybody on the panel know much about that? I could speak to a specific one if that's useful, Gary, yep. which is probably what Rosie's asking about. So we've got a, a LIAT machine, which is a PCR LIAT machine. So it's different from a RAT. So um, there may, maybe there's different types. So just so we don't have these little, you know, acronyms, what does RAT and so, LAT and does that stand little, for? Little four-legged things. So so the, the RAT 
is the rapid antigen test, which are those things, I mean, Jared could give more details. It's those things they use in the UK and spit on on the way to a football match, which are less, certainly less specific and a bit less sensitive too. But the, the LEAT that we have actually does a PCR test and James Usher is, is calling the sensitivity of that right up there with what they're doing in the lab in Dunedin. So we're using it as an equivalent. But I guess it's understanding what you've got at each site and, and what it what its place is. And how quickly do you get the result of that? 20 minutes from when you put it in the machine. And what's the cost of it? Oh, for the actual machine? It was provided... Like if someone doesn't have one. Yeah, I think it might have been around 20 grand or something. But it was part of the whole lab arrangement because we're a wee way from Dunedin. Yeah. What's the turnaround on your nasopharyngeal? So say if you do a nasopharyngeal screening, how quickly do you get that back? Uh, so it's the same swab lessened, but if it goes to Dunedin, yeah. then you're probably looking at the next day. Depends on which career okay. it's on. That's but that, that varies probably because we've got low swabbing rates at the moment in the south. That could well drop down. And around the country, other people have had, I think, longer turnarounds, two or three days when it's busy in the labs if anyone wants to add to that. Anyone else got any experience with these other testing kits? We're just trialing, starting to trial the, the rats, take, taking it at the same, the rapid antigen testing, taking it at the same time as we take the PCR and then doing them daily until the PCR result is back because ours are taking up to three, four to five days sometimes by the time they get from to Portuguese to Fakatani to Tauranga, and then that's and then gets get processed when Tauranga are doing a lot of Auckland swab. So we are looking four to five days. So we're going to do the rats until we get a PCR. We're trialing it anyway, but that means two nasopharyngeal swabs for the people, and then nasopharyngeal swabs every day. Not the greatest. <laughs> no. Yeah. Be explicit about rapid tests, whether they're LEATs or PCR. I think it applies to the risk profile of whom you're doing it on. If there's an access concern and you want a rapid indicator or a steer on what to do, it's a rule-in test. That's right, yeah. Yeah, say, because we're, we're wasting a few gene expert tests at the rural site I work at to get people into CT scanners that would probably be better done with rapid tests. Say you've got a low probability individual with a, a specific rapid test, you can probably give yourself a little bit of extra reassurance with a, with a, a negative rapid test, but you're starting from a low probability standpoint. If you get a surprise positive result, it's more effective as a, as a, a rule-in in that setting. So a specific test is better as a rule-in than a rule out. If you've got someone who's got a pneumonia and you get a negative rapid test, I'd find that non-reassuring. So symptomatic patients where you're looking for a clinical syndrome of COVID-19, you want to do a formal PCR test. If you're going to do a rapid test on it, you want to do them in parallel, just like Rachel's talking about. So you want, in that setting, you want a definitive test and you want your rapid information while you're trying to manage things as you go. But as a standalone test, I would not use a rapid test for trying to diagnose COVID-19 in someone with a compatible illness. That is very hard to explain to lay people. Yeah. My lot want to put up checkpoints and do a rapid test with 
at yeah. every, you know, and trying to explain why that doesn't work is, is quite difficult when you have a very sovereign iwi. Yeah. It's a good point, Rachel. It's a good point. There, there was a question, uh, I think, in the chat about where you put your your rapid test. And I suspect it depends a little bit on the kind of it. I know our laboratory is very keen to put the gene expert that's come our way into the laboratory, into a into a biological <laughs> safety cabinet. And I think it's particularly because there is some risk of cross-contamination if you're outside of the lab environment. In other words, uh, what is, you know, let's say a positive sample has been worked through. And if there's any of that lingering in the environment, the next sample could um, test positive as well as in fact, that person's negative. I don't know whether Jared's got any comment on that. No, I just think your, your quality control is important. The more, more technical you get with things, I think Gene Expert is a good rapid PCR test, but you've got to be exquisitely careful with the handling, do things in a sequence and keep it clean. Liats and, and um, rats need a little bit. The, the technique's still important, but the handling considerations are uh, a lot easier. Gary, I'll hand back to you. Just, just firstly, Mark, have you got anything to add to that? I mean, you've been working with James Usher a bit around uh, the point of care testing, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, probably not a lot in terms of what Jared's already said about the rats. Other than that, James put out some useful data I could share where uh, if your prevalence is like less than one in a thousand, then a third of your positives are going to be false positive or something. So it's, as Jared said, it's very much about your pretest probability for the rats and just understanding that. And as Rachel said, helping patients understand that as well. They're always going to be good enough to kick people out of rhythm and vines. Yeah, rhythm and binds was cancelled, so that is not a you know an issue because we did have everyone concerned about that, so that's good. Coming at I Easter, rhythm and Alps might be going. I don't know. Okay, so uh, my clock has disappeared. What's the time, Gary? Sorry, uh, it's about quarter two. Quarter two. Okay. Any key questions? And otherwise, I've got three new messages down the bottom here. Uh, thank you, Matt. <laughs> I hadn't seen those. Okay. So I think, Gary, any other questions that were in there that you think we should discuss? No, I think we've um, covered them off pretty well, actually. I think there's something. Okay, great. Anyone on the panel got any last comments I'd probably just like to, anything that you'd like to say, any key points, Jared, Mark, Jeremy, Steve, Rachel, happy for all of you to have. comment for me, Jacinda, I think it's easy to get bogged down on the medical management, but really the issue for this disease in New Zealand is about that monarchy and, and the social support uh, and the opportunity to connect with patients who don't have a relationship with their GP or with, with health service. This is a another opportunity and I think something we just really need to keep in the forefront of our minds. Thank you. I'd yeah, like to reiterate what, what Mark said and, and uh, Sarah as well about, you know, it's also about caring for ourselves, uh, caring for each other. That's going to be, it's a long journey already and there's a lot further to go and yeah, we need to take those breaks and uh, give ourselves space maybe for supervision as well. Absolutely. Rachel? I think my comment is around those people who are not well connected to um, health services and that we have to be super aware of the people who are most likely 
to be affected by this illness and it's not going to be easy and we need to ensure that we're saving unvaccinated lives and Māori lives and those lives of people who are really at risk of this disease. Absolutely, that's where that little bit of extra effort and those extra phone calls will be really, really key. Jared? Like everyone else has said, I think we are the masters of understanding our patient's context and it's the most important risk profiling tool we're going to use to keep our communities safe. I think there's no reason for us to fear coming into contact with COVID. We just need to be careful with it, approach it with calm and get really good at it. And like everyone else has said, manaki is, is most of COVID care with a little bit of medicine sprinkled on top. And, you know, we just have to apply the same front door assessment principles we always do when we see sick people. We're all going to have to have social histories like a fourth year, aren't we? That's the key. Brush up on those. I agree. Context is key. Mark? Yeah, pretty much just echoing what people have said, caring for our, our patients, their whanau and colleagues holistically. And also, I echo what Jeremy alluded to, is cashing in and getting the bright side of these things. Is It's a great opportunity to build links with your DHB and your urban counterparts. So there are some positives coming out of this. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, team. I'd obviously, in my primary care role, obviously you're going to, you know, we've talked a lot about discussions with discussing with tertiary hospitals, remember, and Rachel will probably agree with us that in terms of the discussions around the calls you're going to receive from your GPs uh, caring for patients in the community, it's going to be the same sort of two-way discussions. So fantastic team. I really appreciate all your time and your contribution, all voluntary, and I, we are very grateful for that. Uh, it's been a very interesting evening uh, and we, if you complete the online survey, put your medical council number in there, don't email it to me, and then I will log on the CME points through the college website for you. I can only do that tomorrow, so don't email me in two or three days saying, can I do it for you, okay? So, uh, and then the other point is that we will probably just put this video up pretty much raw so um, won't do much post editing and so that we can get it up as soon as possible for you to share with your colleagues and have a look at and review things any resources that we have we will put up on leaning on the fence post blog and we will aim to do that as quickly as possible as well uh, any other feedback or anything I'm very keen to have feedback feel happy to uh, and free to email me about that and on that note I'd just like to say thanks again to the panel uh, and kakite. <laughs>